So does anybody here, do you have like those Christmas songs that when they come on your playlist, you skip them? Yeah. So I just want to give you a few that I would invite all of us to do. One is Christmas shoes. It's just too sad. It's too sad. Yeah, it's too sad. Um, how about Mary Did You Know? Yeah, that's on the skip list. Like, boop. I'm like, she knew an angel explicitly told her. Why are we asking this question? I don't understand. All right. So any version of Santa Baby, I'm pretty much like, boop. Yeah. And then anything by Pentatonix, I'm like, yeah, let's skip that. Or Pentatonix singing Santa Baby. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so bad. That's so bad. Um, so I'm going to confess a movie that I always skip during the Christmas season that I might get booed and hissed, and that's okay. That's, that happens, right? I always skip the Christmas story. Yeah, okay, so I got some fan supporters out there. I'm like, let them shoot his eye out. I don't, I don't care if that happens. Um, so uh, there's a part, as I was thinking about this, uh, there's a part of the biblical, like, actual Christmas story that we're tempted to skip over as well. And consequently, we might miss out on some Christmas spirit or some spiritual encouragement. Uh, and that is why we are starting our brand new series, The Christmas List, okay? So welcome to that. And uh, Christmas is the time of lists. It's a time of uh, putting together our food and shopping lists. Some of you are putting together the names and addresses of people you're going to send a Christmas card to. And then I always go to people's house and check to see who got one. And then that's not at my house. I'm like, oh, okay. So I didn't make their list. No, I don't. I'm not petty like that. I don't do that. Um, some are creating their Amazon wish list. That's me. I'm doing that. And anybody in here that celebrates the holiday of Festivus, you are gathering a list of grievances against your family. So that is a real insider joke from Seinfeld. So that's just for me. All right. Um, so this year, many people will be buying as a gift for their family or someone they love the gift of the DNA testing kit 23andMe or some version of that. And so as I was thinking of the Christmas story, the Christmas story includes all those notable figures that we're used to seeing, like the angels and uh, the shepherds and Joseph and, of course, Jesus. But there's also a list that's in the Christmas story that we are tempted to skip over. And here it is, Jesus's genealogy. Okay, so... How many of you, uh, when you come across a genealogy list in the Bible, just plow right through it, turn the page, or skip it all together? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's understandable and relatable because, like, we don't know what to do with that. I can't say, like, 98% of their names correctly. And so uh, we just skip it, right? That's pretty normal. Um, and, like, family trees are just so kind of individual and personal, Right? So, like, reading about someone else's family tree might be the equivalent of, like, someone talking to you about their fantasy football team, and you're like, I have, like, five more minutes of being able to fake interest in this conversation before I run out. And so, some of that, it's just so personal, and, and so, if you need to fake interest into this message about Jesus' genealogy, you go ahead and fake it, you have my permission, but as you're faking it, I think Jesus... The Holy Spirit wants to speak something really important to you and I through this. So 
genealogies have probably never been more popular since like the ancient world. As of 2022, about 30 million people have either done something like Ancestry.com or 23 and me. I'm sure some of you in here have done that. And somehow out of those 30 million, all 30 million had someone come over on the Mayflower. I'm like, I don't think so. Somebody's, somebody's ancestries is not right. Um, so genealogies uh, can be really personally beneficial to someone for a lot of reasons. And if you've done it, you know this. A person's ancestry can help them better understand their identity. Uh, their history um, can shed some light on their personal reality that they're living out today. Someone's genealogy uh, can help explain some of their biology, right? Like some of their health stuff. And it can be comforting to know that how something going on can somehow be traced back to someone from their past. And we have common expressions that some of us use to express this sentiment. We'll say it like this. Well, it runs in the family. I come from a long line of, you know, fill in the blank. Or my roots are, or it's in my blood. And so there's this idea that something somehow has been passed down, that there's this belief in some way, known and unknown, concrete or mysterious, that those who have gone before us are having some measure of influence on us even still. And connected to this idea are like generational patterns uh, that we can see that trace back. Um, and it can be even like traditions that we love, that we embrace and we like want to pass down. But then there's like destructive generational things that we can see in our family tree that some of you have said, it stops on my watch. It stops here. I'm not bringing that to the next generation. I don't want this being passed down into the family tree. I remember my wife, she came from a very dysfunctional family and just brokenness, divorce, everything. Just And there were just some things that when she got married, this stops with us. I'm not, I don't want to see this get passed down any further. So in the ancient world, gene, genealogies were very significant too, just like they can be for us. Um, and maybe even more so for them, because in the ancient world, um, someone's genealogy would often determine their position within society. That your genealogy could determine your status, your privilege, whether you have a lot or you have nothing. So it wasn't just genes that got passed down to you in the ancient world. It would also be things like, do I get the property passed down to me? Uh, do I get a blessing passed down to me? Uh, do I get an inheritance passed down to me, or do I not get it because I have 17 older brothers who are going to get it, and then I'm at the bottom of that list, right? That your primary identity came from your genealogy, and it was also how other people would view you in light of your family tree. So in essence, in the ancient world, genealogy had immense cultural, social, political, and religious Implications, And this is also true for Jesus' family tree. And since so many of you just confess to always skipping that list altogether and having never read Jesus' genealogy list, we're going to read it together today so that we can all say, we did it. We did it. Check. We never have to do it again. All right. So read with me, please, in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy 
Nope. All right. So let's let's skip it. Let's just go to the next slide. Just skip it. I can't. I tried to, to do it, but no. All right. So we're going to skip it. So I'll just walk you through it a little bit. In Jesus' genealogy, we see some really notable, world-famous people like Abraham. We see infamous people like Judah. We see royal people like King Solomon. Um, And we see scandalous people like the prostitute Rahab. We see idolaters. We see faithful people. We see Jews. And we see Gentiles. So in this series... We're going to explore uh, some important names on this list because Jesus' genealogy is like a mixed bag of who's who, who's naughty, who's nice, who's faithful, who's not. Um, So welcome to Jesus' big old family tree. It's dysfunctional and it's relatable because so is your family tree. And so in this series, we're going to explore what Jesus' genealogy says about Jesus and what it says about Jesus us, about you and me. So each week, we're going to look at a different person that is on Jesus's genealogy list and the way in which their life is still impacting our lives today. And you have probably heard of and know quite a bit about one of them. The other one, you probably know someone named after him. And then the third one, there's a good chance many of us know almost nothing about him. So here are the three, three men on the list we're going to talk about in the Christmas list in December. David, the shepherd, Josiah, the king, and Boaz, the redeemer. I actually met someone named Boaz, and I was like, I'm sorry, bro. And so today, we're going to talk about Boaz, someone you may not know much about. He's an important figure in Jesus's genealogy, and our hope is that we can figure out what his life has to say to us today, because Boaz foreshadows some things that Jesus would ultimately come to fulfill, and it's really, really powerful. So, Boaz started something that Jesus would come to do for the whole. So, if you're far from Christmas list comforting. Um, If you love God and circumstances in your life don't look like you wish they looked like, the Christmas list series may be encouraging. I think the Christmas list could help shed some light on some significance in meeting out of them. So, could shed some light on is some of the lies that we believe. Have a way of like un- entrenching us further into lies we believe because of unwanted circumstances we have in our life and unwanted feelings we don't want to experience. Um, and sometimes holidays have a way of just accentuating everything the good, the bad, the hard, the joy, all of the above. It has a way of just amping up every feeling, whether it's a wanted one or an un- unwanted one. And holidays, especially at Christmas, have the capacity, like almost nothing else, to take something that's hard and just make it even harder, or something that we love and help us to even enjoy it anymore. But some of the lies that we believe are that our past mistakes are enough to condemn us. That's a lie we believe. Some of us believe that our significance is in direct proportion to what we can accomplish, 
And some of us believe that some of the generational things that have been passed down to you are something you're just never going to break free from. That some of you believe that there's just something in our blood. There are just some things that God can't touch. God can't restore. God can't redeem. Because it's just cycle, 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 repeat, repeat, repeat. Life, has, life circumstances have a way of causing us to lose sight of what could be. And the pic, when, when the picture we have in our head of what our lives should look like at this stage of our life, and it doesn't look like that, it could be easy to stop looking to God, begin to take things into our own hands. And then what we end up is in some sort of varied states of worry, fear, doubt, Loneliness, despair, disappointment. And I believe Jesus' lineage has the capacity to some unearth some lies and give us some truth and some hope that we can hold on to. So, I want to share with you the true story of a man named Boaz. I don't know why I'm saying it like that. I just like saying it like that. You don't have to say it like that. But I want to tell you the story about a man named Boaz and a woman named Ruth and it's a universally relatable story in this way. It's a story of love and loss. It's a story of hope and hopelessness. It's a story of lament and a story of celebration. It's a story of unwanted circumstances and undeserved grace. It's a story of pain, and it's the story of God working behind the scenes to work that pain for good. It's ultimately a story of redemption, and ultimately, this story is a microcosm of the story of the whole Bible, which is an epic story of redemption for the whole world. So in this story, we're going to find ourselves in it, whether we can relate to the people in the story or not, and we're going to find Jesus in it, even though his name isn't mentioned, because this story is about redemption, and to put it in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 7, it says this, Israel... God's people, so he would say to us, God's people, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full, would you say it with me, redemption, full, not half full, not quarter full, in him is full redemption. How many need some full redemption for some things going on in our lives, things that are just not the way we want them to be, our health isn't the way they want them to be, so... I want to set the scene. We are around the year 12th, 11th century BC, and guess where we find ourselves, which is perfect for this season, in the town of Bethlehem. Eventually, the birthplace of Jesus the Messiah. So, I'm gonna, here we go. We're going to hop right into the story of Ruth. If you ever want to read it on your own, it's four chapters. It's a pretty easy read, or do it on audio when you go on a walk or something. So, a severe famine hits the town of Bethlehem, which was not uncommon in the ancient world. You have one crop go bad, it goes bad for everybody. So, a Jewish man named Elimelech packed up everything he could, took with him his wife, Naomi, and fled to Moab with his two sons. Moab was historically an enemy to this Jewish man in his country. So he grabs his wife, grabs his sons, flees to a country that was historically their enemy because of something severe. 
If you were just to fast forward the tape a few centuries, you're going to find something eerily similar. A Jewish man named Joseph grabbing his wife, grabbing his son, fleeing from Bethlehem because of a hit King Herod put on all baby boys at two years and under. And where did they flee? To Egypt, the historical enemy of the Jews. So Elimelech's wife was named Naomi. And tragically, as they arrived in Moab, Naomi's husband would pass away, leaving her a widow with two sons. Naomi's two sons would eventually find two women to marry in Moab, one named Orpah, which every time I typed her name in here, it autocorrected to Oprah. And uh, so I'll just go back and forth between the two. Uh, So her two sons would marry Orpah, and then uh, the other one would marry a woman named Ruth. So last weekend I was at a, a memorial service, and I was talking to a woman. She had three adult kids, and she's lost two of them. And she said to me, a child should never go before their parents. I think that is a sentiment we all say yes to that. So that is where she is at. And sadly, I thought of Naomi because sadly that's where Naomi would end up. After about 10 years of being in Moab, both of her sons would die. So her husband's dead, her two sons are dead, leaving not only her a widow, but now she has two daughter-in-laws who are both widows, three widows. I'm telling you this, there are very few groups of people in the ancient world that are more susceptible to being marginalized and in poverty and in slavery than a female widow. Soon as your husband passed, the stakes are high. You live on a razor's edge in the ancient world. So things are dire, because it's not just one widow, they got three of them now. All the men are dead. Naomi would lose her one and only sons. For God so loved the world that he would give up his one and only son so that all who believe in him would be saved. God gets that when you lose your one and only son. Word would eventually spread to Moab and to Naomi that the famine was over in her hometown. Crops were flourishing again. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth packed up and hit the road back to Bethlehem. Have you ever set on on a path? And you're like, okay, this is the path we need to go. And then you go down that path and it all crumbles and falls apart and you find yourself have to returning back to where you came from broken and just like, what is that? What was the point of all that? If you have ever felt that in any way, you're feeling some version of Naomi, Orpah, and what Ruth are feeling, especially Naomi. What was the point of all this? So somewhere in their journey back to Bethlehem, Naomi kind of pauses the trek, grabs her daughters-in-law's, and says, you guys need to go back to Moab. That's your home. That's where you, you know people and your families are. And you need to go and find someone to marry you. It's not too late for me. And she says, I'm old. It's over for me. I'm not going to marry. You're still young enough. And she even, it's so funny, she says to him, what do you, expect, what do you think I'm going to do? Like, 
marry again, have kids, and you guys both wait 20 years for them to grow up and become marryable? And he's like, no, like, you're not going to do that. I will. I don't want you to do that. You both need to go back home to Moab. I think Naomi was starting to feel in the midst of all this a little bit sorry for herself, and we can all understand. She's dealing with immense trauma. Have you ever been where Naomi's at in a sense of like so down and, and because maybe you didn't want to burden anybody else, you, you kept pushing people away? No, just, just go. It's fine. Just go. Can I help? No, 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 no. Just go back home. You don't need help. Well, can we do this? No, 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 no. I'm fine. I got it. 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 Just push them away, right? Because of our shame, our embarrassment, our pain, our hurt, it's very normal to just push people away when we need them the most. That is a very human thing to do. It is what Naomi is doing. She's going, girls, go back. I'm going to go alone. I'm so thankful that when we push others away, our Heavenly Father holds on tight. The next part of this story, I'm just going to read directly because it sums up perfectly how hard things were for these women. As Naomi was talking to these girls, she says, may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage because, boy, that would help keep them alive. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. This was the end of the journey for those three together. So at first, Orpah and Ruth both resisted and declared their intention to stay with her in her pain. And isn't that such a beautiful, great picture of our Heavenly Father who wants to remain in our pain? He doesn't want to leave. He wants to stay right in the mess. Either we landed in or we made or a mixture of both. He wants to remain in the pain. That was Orpah and Ruth's like, no, 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 don't send us. We'll stay with you in your pain. Isn't that beautiful? That that's what our Heavenly Father wants to do for us, and that's what our Heavenly Father wants us to do for one another, to remain in the pain, even if their pain causes us pain. Naomi was uh, persistent that the girls leave, so Orpah headed back home to Moab. But shockingly, Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. She's having none of it. Listen to these beautiful, powerful words from Ruth in chapter 1. She says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. This is so awesome. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Yeah, what do you say to that? Naomi's heels in. Sometimes when people are pushing us away, there's, we got to discern, like, at what point we put heels in because love protects. Like, no, I'm not... I'm not leaving here. I think Ruth gives us a glimpse into the heart of God and how he thinks and feels about us in our pain. And if I could take Ruth's words and put them in God's mouth, I think it could say and sound something like this. And this is what God would say to us. Don't ask me to leave you. 
Wherever you go and whatever you go through, I will go with you. You will be my child and I will be your heavenly father. And when you die, I will be there and not even death will be able to separate us. So the girls arrive in springtime. Crops are starting to grow in Bethlehem. Everyone is super excited to see Naomi again. That's, her, you know, that's where she was from. They're very enthusiastic. Naomi is not sharing in their enthusiasm. Is anybody related to that, coming to church? Maybe even today. And everyone's going, oh, come, let us. And you're like, oh, whatever. Get me out of here. I'm not feeling it. Have you ever, have you ever been there at a church service where you're just like, I'm not feeling it. Everybody's enthusiastic. Everybody's great. I'm not doing great. Is the coffee still back there? I'm going to go get some of that. <laughs> so everybody's enthusiastic, but not Naomi. We understand why. She's still in trauma. So <laughs> Naomi tells them, hey, guys, you know me as Naomi. I'm changing my name now. Call me Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitterness. She changes her name to bitterness. Wow. I mean, isn't that just so transparent though she is not being fake or phony with anybody i don't know how this works like you picture like how that translates for us hey bitterness how you doing today you you just gave the answer to how i'm doing today when you said my name i am bitter i love her transparency that she went to all these enthusiastic people said call me bitter oh okay I love that she's not faking it. Do you know you can come here and not fake it? I mean, you can if you want to. That's fine to fake it. You can come and not fake it. How are you doing? Horrible. Do you want to be here? Absolutely not. And God's like, yeah, that's okay. That is actually really okay. If you're here today and you don't want to be here, <laughs> that's all right. It's okay. So Ruth needs to find some work. So she ends up finding some work working in a field of a close, close relative of her deceased father-in-law. He was a wealthy and highly influential man named Boaz. Thank you. So nobody knew this at this time, but this big guy from old little town of Bethlehem, uh, he would end up being a relative of Jesus. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. So one day, Ruth is working in the field, and it's one of Boaz's fields because he's a landowner. He's wealthy. And Boaz notices this foreigner, because she's a foreigner, she's from Moab, working in his field. So he goes to his foreman, and he says, who is this? And they explain the story. Hey, she's from Moab. She's with Naomi. And uh, he's like, okay. He sees her. He notices her. And what I love about this is if you're Ruth, you're a widow, you're doing whatever you can to make a life for yourself so you don't starve or die or become enslaved, how incredible is that if you catch the eye of someone who has some power and some influence? Like, how unbelievable is it if you're Ruth and you are seen? You are seen by somebody. How cool is that? She is seen. I'm sure she felt invisible. I'm sure Naomi felt invisible. There she is 
just kind of, you know, working in a field. No one knows who she is, and she's seen by the guy. I think she sees us alone in the field, working, hustling, trying to figure it out, all the while dealing with pain and trauma and lament and grief. So Boaz not only just sees her, he immediately recognizes her vulnerability. She's a foreigner. She's single. She's a widow. She has no covering, no protection, and she's working in a field with a bunch of men. So that may mean something today. It definitely meant something then. It was dangerous for her to be working in that field with men. In fact, in the book of Ruth, there are a couple occasions where she is told explicitly, hey, work in this field and this field alone. Don't go into that field. It's not going to go well for you because of the men that are in that field. So Boaz says to Ruth, he sees that. He says, I want you to work in my field. You'll be safe. Then he gathers all the men together. This is so beautiful. Gathers all the men together and goes, hey, nobody touches her. You hear me? Nobody touches her. Ruth gets to work in the field. Leave her alone. This gives us great insight into kind of the, char- the character of this man of God who would want to give so generously to this foreigner just after having come out of like this historic drought that happened years before. It'd be easy to go, hey, foreigners don't get anything. Just the Jews, just the locals, just, you know. He's like, no, no, I'm going to take care of you. Stay in my field. So Ruth comes in from the field one day from working, and Naomi asks her, hey, whose field are you working in? And she says, hey, it's this man named Boaz. Naomi's heart perks up. She's like, she's so excited. Because she realizes Boaz is one of her husband's closest relatives, and even a bigger revelation about Boaz is that he is a kinsman redeemer. Which I know, no excitement, right? (laughs) Because we don't have that in our lives. A kinsman redeemer. It's a very ancient term. So a kinsman redeemer was an ancient practice established by God to protect and provide for people just like Ruth who were widows and vulnerable. So a kinsman redeemer had the responsibility of providing for protection, security, food, and even land for Someone in the family, especially if they were a widow. See, a kinsman redeemer could be the last thing between someone going into slavery or being free. Someone starving or getting fed. So Ruth is super, Naomi's super excited. She's like, oh my gosh, he's a kinsman redeemer. He knows you. You're working in his field. She could see the possibilities. You're a widow. He's a kinsman redeemer. You have no protection. You have no covering. Anybody of you, anybody here uh, that are single uh, have a family member or friend who's trying to set you up all the time? They're like, I saw a guy at Smith's, looked maybe single. <laughs> uh, he looked lonely, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Someone's relating to this. Okay, <laughs> literally. Did I even pick the right grocery store? Was that, was it Smith's? I love that. Smith's is where it's at, single people. It's the self-checkout line where it all happens. Because they're by themselves. That's so sad. I know, it's very sad. Um, 
So Naomi goes into full like episode of The Bachelor mode. And Boaz is The Bachelor. And, and she's like, all right, Ruth, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> she's like, hey, Ruth, uh, Boaz is going to be winnowing some barley tonight. <laughs> Which is how every love story begins. Like, winnowing some barley, woo, baby. Come on. Winnow away. And this next part I find so funny because, like, after she says that to Ruth, she's like, okay, next thing, you need to take a bath. <laughs> it's like, you've been in the field all day. I feel like if we have any chance of this working out, you need to take a bath. So I thought that was a reasonable request. So, so far, she's like, okay, I want you to put on the nicest dress you have. So right now, pretty normal stuff. Take a bath, um, you know, get your nicest to sleep tonight, and then sleep on his feet. And you're like, that's turned in a direction I didn't know this whole thing was going. I will say this. You know what's real love if you can find someone who's willing to touch your feet, uh, let alone sleep on them like a pillow, right? Because that's what she's encouraging Ruth to go do. I know it is true love love with my wife because she said yes to me even though I have bunions on my feet. I know, you can laugh. It's okay. I'm, I'm not embarrassed about that. But she loves me despite of my feet. So Boaz goes and has a big meal. He has some wine. And he lies. Does in the ancient world. So Ruth had spied that out, knew where he'd went, and so she comes in at midnight, and uh, he, his feet were covered, so she lifts them, and then she rests upon his feet. To which Boaz just wakes up, probably just terrified, immediately out of a deep sleep, and is like, who is that? <laughs> so uh, Ruth says, hey, it's, it's me, it's Ruth. I love Ruth's boldness, her tenacity, her courage, her directedness, because she essentially basically proposes marriage to him. And I thought, like, you know, there's just some things that if we're going to step into what God has called us to, we're going to need some tenacity. We're going to need some boldness. We're going to need some courage. We're going to have to have Ask some big prayers. She went big. I love her boldness. So she basically proposes and then reminds him, hey, remember, you're my kinsman redeemer. And he's like, yeah, I do know that. He says to her, I will do whatever's right. But he said, here's what's right. You actually have a closer relative than me who's got kinsman redeemer rights before I do. She's like, oh, okay. So here's what Boaz does. He doesn't put it on her to figure it all out, which I love. We have a heavenly father just doesn't say, hey, just go figure it out. He's like, no, I can, I can help you. 
So Boaz goes to the town gate, which is where in the ancient world business was often conducted. So he sat at the entrance of the town gate, and he waited for this other relative to walk into town. So he stops him, and he explains Ruth's situation, and he says, hey, you're the closer relative, the closer kinsman redeemer, so you have rights before I do to redeem her and redeem her situation. So he explains to this man, hey, this means, you know, you'll be able to redeem property uh, and, and all this stuff. And he's like on board. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm absolutely doing that, 100%. Let me do that. And then he says, and you'll also have to marry Ruth. And he's like, uh, yeah, I tap out. I don't want to do that. I got too much at stake. I got too much land. I don't need another name getting mixed into this, and maybe I lose some land rights. So he taps out. He says, I'm not doing it. I'm glad Ruth wasn't there for that conversation. That had to be pretty painful. Have you ever had someone try to help you, but you knew there were strings attached? It just wasn't out of just this sincere desire to want to help you and support you. It feels hurtful, right? So this guy's land holdings were more important to him. He doesn't have the character that Boaz has. So he says, I relinquish my rights, you're up next. So Boaz, he meets with the city leaders right there at the gate. So there's witnesses. There's a weird taking off your sandal ritual that I don't understand that. And they exchange it, and Boaz is like, I take full covering, full responsibility from Ruth for this day forward. How awesome is Boaz? How awesome is Boaz? And she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's already been married to someone else. What that other man feared losing, Boaz could have feared. He's like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this thing. Man. Boaz gives us this glimpse of the heart of God for us when we find ourselves in Naomi or Ruth's shoes. Did you know God is perfectly sufficient within himself and doesn't actually need anything from you? So whatever he does ask of you, it's for your benefit and not his. Like, that's important to remember. Whatever God asks from you is not for his benefit. He's fine. He is perfectly sufficient within himself. Anything he says to us is ultimately for our benefit, even when we can't understand it. He's not like, uh, he doesn't use people. He gives to people. He doesn't have, like, the whole strings attached. Well, if, it, if, it's, uh, if you don't do this, don't that, then I'm out. He's like Boaz. No, 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 I'm here. I redeem. This is what I do. So what an incredible story because it builds up. It kind of ends like a Disney fairy tale in that, like, they go home. They get married. She has a kid. She's no longer a widow. She was a daughter-in-law. Now she's a mom. How cool is this? For this poor, marginalized, mobile woman. So the townspeople in, in Bethlehem gather together. They're so excited about this baby. Where have we heard that story before? This baby from Bethlehem. So here's the words they said and prayed over uh, Ruth. They said, praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family, and may this child become famous in Israel. So here's how these words ultimately ended up playing out. So Ruth gave birth to a boy named Obed. 
who is not famous, but he's in the Bible. So there we go. Now you've heard of him. Obed would be the father of a man named Jesse, who we go, okay, Jesse, not sure. Uh, Jesse would be the father of David. Yes, that David, like King David, like David and Goliath, David. So get this, <laughs> this widow on the margins and on the fringe of society working in someone else's field ends up becoming the great grandmother to King David. She's got royal blood in her now, just not Moabite blood. She's got royal blood. And nobody, nobody, of course, knew at that time that that wasn't going to be the last king from her bloodline. That in her family tree, another baby boy would be born in Bethlehem. That would become famous, and everybody would know his name. And his name was Jesus. Wow. Talk about redemption story. Talk about from like rags to riches, from hopelessness to hope. Ruth's story is a story of redemption, and the Bible is an epic story of redemption. And all along Ruth's journey, God was working in the background, almost silently and unknowingly to everybody in the room. Picture her working in that field. She's not feeling like God is doing much of anything at that point. Picture on the road, the long journey back from Moab to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, not feeling like God is up to anything good. But there's God all along her journey working in the background. And guess what that tells us? He's working in the background in our lives right now. In whatever your story is. Maybe you haven't got to the redemptive part. You're waiting on that. It's still hard. You're still walking back to Bethlehem with your head down going, what was that all about? What's the meaning of all of that? And yet we serve a God who says, I remain with you in your pain. I'm like Ruth. I'm not going anywhere. Where you go, I go. And you push everyone away, and I just hold on tight. Because that's who I am. I'm your kinsman redeemer. Because in the story, we're Ruth. We're Ruth. We're the one going, what do I do? Help. And Boaz gives us a glimpse of what ultimately Jesus would do. What Boaz would do for this one woman, Jesus would come to do for the entire world to bring redemption. Just as Boaz redeemed Ruth, Jesus redeems us. That all those who put their faith in him get a new family tree. Your genealogy changes. You get grafted in to his root system. So if you believe the lie that it's just in your blood, Jesus would say, hey, guess what? You have some of my blood in you too now. And my blood covers your blood. The shed blood of Jesus. Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he said it this way in Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption, hearkening back to Boaz and Ruth, through his blood. It's in the blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Boaz was extraordinarily extravagant towards Ruth, and so was our Heavenly Father towards us. And if you're not feeling it right now, Ruth wasn't always feeling that. Naomi wasn't always feeling that. But God was working behind the scenes.
You may believe the lie, you know what, it just runs in my family. Jesus would say to you, you've been adopted into a new family now. You are more than your past. You are more than your roots. And God can redeem any family tree. Like Boaz did for Ruth, our Heavenly Father does for us. He sees us. He sees you. He sees me when we're lonely. He sees us when our relationships are falling apart. He sees us when we feel like Naomi changed my name to bitter. I don't like how my life is turning out. This isn't what I pictured in my head. Why am I having to go through this? Jesus redeems those things. Ultimately, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, he redeems them. He pays for their sin, for my sin. So beautiful. And then he brings us into his family. Man, I'm encouraged by that. So let me ask you this. If you're here today and you've never, never, been grafted into God's family, and you want to do that today, would you come find me after service? I want to pray for you, that you would just say to your Heavenly Father, your Creator, I I put my hope and trust in you. I want to be in your family. I want your blood to cover my sins, and He wants to do that for you. He wants to bring you grace and forgiveness. He wants to do for you what He's done for everybody who took communion today, recognized that He died on a cross for their sin in their place for their redemption. And if you are a God follower here today and you're like, you know what, I I know God. I have been forgiven of my sins, but there are just some things I need him to touch. They need to be restored. They need to be renewed. It could be your mind. It could be a relationship. It could be your health. You just need God. God, please touch this because you find yourself in that space of like making your way back to Bethlehem going, I I don't don't know. This is not where I want to be in life. God wants to touch you in the midst of those circumstances. So, Lauren, would you join me? Prayer teams, would you come on up and join me up here? I want to give us a chance to close in prayer and to close in in, uh, receiving prayer. Um, Can I just have anybody that's on one of our prayer teams that normally wasn't scheduled, they just come up? I could use about maybe like four sets of two. Thank you. Today, if you just need someone to pray over you, to encourage you, to just get it out and to not, not, not hold it back, but to be like Naomi and go, Here, here's what I'm feeling. I'm just bitter right now. I'm just this right now. I'm just broken right now. I'm just sad right now. Whatever it is, you don't have to fake it. If you want to, that, I totally understand why it's easier sometimes in our brains just to head out the back door. But God sees you, and we want to pray for you. So I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus. I lift up everybody here today who feels like Naomi, who feels like Ruth, who feels like I need redemption. I need to be seen and heard. I need to know that God is in the background working things out, working my pain for good. Infuse us with hope. Infuse us with encouragement. For those who do not walk with you, God, may they put their faith, trust, and hope in you today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that what Boaz started you have finished. What he did for this one woman, you have done for the entire world. Lord, we sit at your feet. 
like Ruth did to Boaz, and we say, you are my Messiah. Praise your holy name. The baby born to Bethlehem, who would grow up to become a savior, Messiah, and will one day be our soon coming king. We give you our praise. We give you our despair. We give you our lament, and we give you our joy. We give to you our pain, and we say thank you that you remain in it with us. So bless my friends today, Lord Jesus, as we head out. Help us to know that it's in the blood and it's your blood that covers our sin. We thank you for your great grace. Would you stand with me now? And as we close, if you need to linger and pray, then do so. If you want to come see someone of our prayer team, please do. And if you need to leave, please do what you need to do. So Lord Jesus, give us your grace. Bless our friends as we go today. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. The Christmas list. Have a great Sunday, friends.